So we are making our way through the Lord's Prayer, one word at a time. This morning we arrive at the word thy, thy kingdom come, or depending on your translation, it might be your. Your in Greek means your. Okay, I'm just kidding. We're not really doing one word at a time. I would never do that to you. (laughs) Well, at least not unnecessarily. Because this morning we're going to do three words. Is that good news? So now let me start all over again. And here's the real introduction. The one that's supposed to get your attention and make you want to listen. In his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper asks this question. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? Now that is a good question. It makes us think about where our true affections lie and what we believe about the kingdom of God and how much we really want the kingdom of God to come. See, I hear Christians saying things like this. Well, of course I want the Lord to return, but I want to have a shot at life first. I want, I want school. I want a career. Or they say things like, well, well, I want the Lord to return, but first I want to finish this, fill in the blank. Of course, I want God's kingdom to come, but I just want to get married first. Of course, I want the Lord's kingdom to come at first. I just want to have children. You know, the list could go on and on and on of things our hearts desire, things that we want before the Lord returns. And it's a pretty good indication whenever we have those thoughts that we have not really rightly understood the kingdom of God. We don't know what it really is if we want to delay it. We don't know what the kingdom of God is if we think anything on this earth is better than or preferable to or more fulfilling than the kingdom of God. So in those moments, when we have those thoughts, We should immediately stop and say, Lord, show me more of your kingdom. Because you and I must pray. You and I must long for the coming kingdom of God. That's what we'll talk about this morning as we return to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn in them. The Gospel of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, and when you found your place, let's stand together so we can hear, read, the word of the living God. This is Matthew, chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Father, we pray now as you've taught us to pray. Part of that, Lord, is that we would have a, a deep understanding of your kingdom so that we have a deep longing for your kingdom to come. Spirit of God, you know the work that needs to be done in each of our lives toward that end. And you know exactly how it is you need to use your truth from your word to bring those changes and make that transformation. And we want you to do that, Lord. We need you to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We submit ourselves now to you, to the authority of your word and the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm sure you've noticed that verses 9 through 10 contain three petitions or three requests. The first is, hallowed be your name. The second, your kingdom come. The third, your will be done. And all three of them are wrapped up with this phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. So we think of it this way, hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This morning, we're going to consider the, the second request. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So what are you and I asking when we obey the Lord and we come to him and we pray this prayer, Lord, your kingdom come. If we don't stop to ponder what the kingdom of God is like, then we don't understand this request that we're making of the Lord. And, and perhaps that's why Jesus has said to us about this prayer, pray like this instead of praying exactly this. It's because this prayer is a model. It's a skeleton. And Jesus leaves plenty of room for you and for me to put flesh on this prayer. As we ponder the enormity of each part of it. That's why we saw last week that we must pause on the word Father. We've got to think deeply about that and pray what it means to have God as our Father before we rush on to our requests. Likewise, this morning, we have to know what it is we are asking the Lord to bring. So to begin with, this morning I want us to consider four realities about the kingdom of heaven. Of course, there are many, many more than four, but that should get us thinking about God's kingdom. And so the first reality of God's kingdom is this. It's awe-inspiring. It is awe-inspiring. God gave his servants visions of heaven. He gave one to Isaiah. And Isaiah saw the Lord seated on a throne. He was high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah saw angels, not with two wings, but with six wings. And they were flying to and fro, and they were saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah felt the foundations of the threshold shake, and the house was filled with smoke. And so we have to understand that the kingdom of God is drastically different from what we experience here on earth. God's kingdom is a place that inspires great awe. The Apostle John, 
got a glimpse of it, recorded the book of Revelation. He saw flashes of lightning and heard rumbles and, and peals of thunder, and he saw a throne, and in front of the throne was a, a sea of glass like crystal. And John, too, heard creatures, saw them, gathered around the throne of God. And he heard them saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. John heard the sound of a roar of a great multitude like the rushing of many waters shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Hallelujah! For our Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad. These are the awesome sights and sounds of God's heavenly kingdom. I'm not suggesting that these rather strange esoteric images would compel you to want to have the kingdom of God come. We have difficulty connecting with these strange images that are so unfamiliar to us. We might not be drawn to this picture any more than we are drawn to that common picture of the angel floating on the cloud, playing the harp for all eternity. Who wants to go there? <laughs> Nobody. Not me. What's important for us to consider is what the person and the place is like that inspires this kind of awe-filled, uncoerced, difficult-to-contain, joyful worship. No matter how strange it may seem to us, in faith we have to believe in what we have not seen. In faith we have to believe how awesome this kingdom must be to inspire this kind of worship. Look at the reaction of the people who experienced these visions. Humans, just like you and me. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unlearned lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Such was the holiness and awe of the King in His kingdom that Isaiah felt completely unworthy to be there. Such was the sight of the king and his kingdom that Isaiah knew that the kingdom in which he lived on earth was not worthy of it. And so after seeing this awe-inspiring vision, I wonder how many times Isaiah prayed for the rest of his life, Your kingdom come, Lord. The kingdom I have seen may come to earth. Likewise, John, overwhelmed, by what he saw, he fell on his knees to worship. Even though he had been praying, your kingdom come now for over 60 years. When he saw this vision, when he saw what the kingdom of God was really like, he was overcome and he was overawed. And so he closes his book of Revelation with these words. Jesus says, I am coming soon. And John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Who would not want that after seeing the kingdom of God? All this speaks to what God is like. And what seeing Him in His kingdom draws out of those beings that He has created. They want to worship like this. They want this kingdom 
to come because it is so awesome. You and I should want the same thing because the kingdom of God is so awesome. Secondly, we know the kingdom of God is a place of great joy. David writes in Psalm 16, verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's beautiful. Asaph writes in Psalm 73, You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Heaven, joy, glory. We know according to Jesus' own teaching that when God welcomes people into his kingdom, he welcomes them into joy. He says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the what? What? Joy. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what God's heavenly kingdom is like. Thirdly, we know that God's kingdom is a place of of universal appeal that satisfies a universal longing. Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Can you imagine? All peoples, all nations of the world will want this kingdom, God's kingdom. It's difficult for us to imagine right now, isn't it? Because it's such a, a foreign concept to us because we all want our own kingdoms. We're all building our own kingdoms. It is a lifelong struggle for you and for me to, to not build our own kingdoms for our own reputation and for our own glory. Same thing is true on an international scale. Nations demanding things be done their way for their reputation, for their glory, for their wealth. Think about the diversity that exists in our own country. Not to imagine, the, not to, to, to mention the, the, the diversity among the nations of the world. We can't even imagine that one thing, just one, would be so appealing and that It would be so satisfying that all people will want it. But that's what the kingdom of God is like. The one that will be seen in the latter days, nations will stream to it. A flow of people wanting the kingdom of God. We even detect a note of urgency in Isaiah's words. Come, let us go. Come on, come on, let's go, let's go. The house of the Lord. This is the universal appeal of the coming kingdom of God and the universal satisfaction it will bring. The question is, is it appealing to you, this kingdom of God? Will you find your deepest satisfaction 
in the kingdom of God? Do you say, I want it. Come, Lord Jesus. Fourthly, the kingdom of it's a place of proportions that we cannot even begin to comprehend. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, i.e. heaven, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Is that not amazing? In the coming ages, in the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom has immeasurable riches, riches of God's grace, riches of His kindness, all expressed to us in Jesus. And the amount of those riches is so vast, it cannot be measured. Which is the same thing as saying, they are infinite, these riches. See, I think that we sometimes imagine heaven as a fireworks display. You know, when we're used to those on the 4th of July, we know what to expect. The fireworks get increasingly better and brighter and louder and faster until the last lavish final display explodes and then it's all over and the sky goes black. I think we think that God's heavenly kingdom will be like that, that that we will get there and in one big moment, we will see everything there is to say. And God will say, well, that's all, folks. That's what my kingdom is like. There it is, all of it. Listen, uh-uh. We are so wrong. And with apologies to Bill Murray, who sat at the table beside me at breakfast on Thursday, the kingdom of heaven will not be like the movie Groundhog Day. Every day of eternity will not be waking up to the same thing over and over again. To things we've already seen and experiences we've already had. It won't be like that. Why? Because it's a place of immeasurable riches of grace. How then could it not be true that every day in heaven, which doesn't even have days by the way, will be increasingly more stunning more captivating, more enthralling, more fascinating until we think it can't get any better, until it does. Maybe it will become more and more intense until we think it's just too much and we can't handle any more, until we can, because we're continually being transformed. Maybe we'll think we couldn't possibly, Lord, I can't possibly celebrate anymore. Until we can. Because some fresh joy found in the immeasurable riches of Christ is set before us. And we're never going to get to the end of it. Never. The grace is going to go on and on. The joy, on and on. The awe, on and on. The celebrating will go on and on. Our community group 
has been watching Tim Keller's series, Gospel in the City. And this past Tuesday, we watched the last video in the series, and it's on heaven. And in that video, Keller quotes C.S. Lewis, who concludes the, the final, the seventh and final book of his Chronicles of Narnia series with this allegorical description of heaven and what it'll be like. He writes, and for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, those who had died, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they are beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Is that good news? Does that compel you to want the kingdom of heaven? I'm just saying, we have no idea. Of course, books have been written, book upon book, about heaven, the kingdom of God. And we can't begin to exhaust it in just a few minutes and, and, and naming simply four characteristics of it. But we need to consider just in a small way so that we long for that kingdom to come here on earth. And that's what Jesus is teaching the disciples here. To pray that that kingdom will come. This prayer, your kingdom come, it's eschatological. That means it has its fulfillment in a, in a future time, in a future event. And the prayer specifically longs for the day that the kingdom of God will come, and that kingdom of God will come when Christ returns. And so praying this prayer, your kingdom come, it orients our lives. If you and I do not pray this prayer, your kingdom come, we might become a little too settled in this life. We might cling to it a little too much. We might want more from it instead of more of the kingdom of heaven. If we don't think about the kingdom of heaven and what it's like, we might relegate this prayer is one that's prayed only by those who are desperate. Only by those who are suffering. Only by those who want to escape from this world, and rightly so. No. This prayer is to be prayed by all who love Christ. This prayer has to have meaning beyond suffering. We have to want the kingdom of God to come for more reasons than to escape this life. We pray it not to escape. We pray this prayer because we want to attain something beautiful. 1 Corinthians 13. You know the verse. I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know 
now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely just as God now knows me completely. See, when the kingdom of God comes, we gain. We gain Christ. We gain the kingdom of heaven in all its fullness. And that's why I think this is one of the first and earliest prayers of the church. The Apostle Paul concludes his first letter to the Corinthians with this prayer. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Our Lord come! Exclamation point. The King James Version retains the original Aramaic word here. Instead of translating it, Our Lord come, the King James reads Maranatha. The only reason I point that out, honestly, it's not to bore you. It's for this really important purpose. And that's because Paul, in the Greek, didn't translate the word. He didn't need to. Any more than we need someone to translate bon voyage for us, or, or prima donna, or caveat, or status quo. Those are all foreign language words, but we know what they mean because they're used so often. And because the word Maranatha, which was Aramaic, was used so often and prayed so fervently by the early church, everybody knew what it meant, whether they spoke Aramaic or not. That's how much the early church longed for and prayed for Christ to return and for his kingdom to come. It's true that life was hard for Christians under the rule of Rome. We know they were ostracized and persecuted and even put to death for their faith in Jesus. But they knew better days were coming. Maranatha. According to several sources, this word Maranatha even replaced the more common greeting of shalom. So instead of someone, shalom, they would say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. But that does not mean that they were trying to escape. What if it meant they were trying to advance? And here's what I mean. In Matthew 24, when Jesus is teaching his disciples about the signs that will accompany the end of time and his second coming, he says this. This is Jesus. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So that's why this prayer, your kingdom come on earth as in heaven, may not have been a prayer to escape, but a prayer to advance. A prayer to advance the gospel, to proclaim it throughout the world. The early church prayed this prayer because they were missional, faithful disciples who wanted to make disciples, and that's why you and I should pray it. This prayer is, in many ways, a prayer for ourselves. Lord, your kingdom come. It's a prayer that we would be missional. It's a prayer that we would be a family on mission together. It's a prayer that you and I would be true disciples and do what true disciples do and love what true disciples who love Christ are supposed to love. It's a prayer that we would make disciples of nations, of all nations. It's a prayer that we might hasten the coming of the Lord 
because we are so actively involved in mission. We're praying that we will be about the work. We're praying that we will be about the work that will bring about the kingdom of God. That's why the early believers were persecuted because they were not distracted by this world. When their businesses crumbled before them, as people boycotted them because of their faith in Christ, they had Christ and His kingdom was coming. When they were ostracized and ridiculed, it didn't matter. They had Christ and His kingdom was coming. When they died martyrs' deaths, it didn't matter. They had Christ and His kingdom was coming. Yes, they had suffering. But it was a suffering in a way of their own making. How easy it would have been for them to let go of Christ, to deny Him. And all their troubles would have gone away in an instant. But they did not. So we may not be correct to assume that they were down in the mouth and broken in spirit when they said to one another, Maranatha, Maranatha. Maybe they said, Maranatha. Maybe they were sad, but maybe they were so filled with excitement because the kingdom of God was growing, just as Jesus promised it would. Because they were living out the gospel, because they were sharing it with others. Maranatha, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. Listen, we're almost finished, so hold on. A prayer of the early church. I'm just going to read part of it. It's from Acts chapter 4. The church is gathered. And when they heard that the apostles had been arrested and threatened for preaching the gospel, Scripture says they lifted their voices together to God and said, And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. And after this prayer, the meeting place shook. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Guess what? No surprise. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. That doesn't sound like a miserable, broken down group of escapists to me. These believers were determined to live faithfully for Christ, no matter the cost. They were determined to preach the gospel and to hasten the coming of the kingdom of God, no matter the cost. The apostle Peter, surely, he prayed this prayer over and over in his life. And he knew that the things of this earth would pass away. So that meant that they have lesser value, a fleeting value compared to the things of the kingdom. And so he writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, Since all these things, it's the world, are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? According to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in Him, without spot or blemish, and at peace. And so when we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, we're praying for ourselves that we would live godly and holy lives in this world. 
not distracted by the things of the world, that we would be anticipating the kingdom, longing for it, ready for it, living lives. Imagine you and I living our lives in such a way that we hasten the coming of the kingdom. Jesus said this, Be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. The question is, are you ready? Have you, in faith, embraced Christ as Lord? The Savior who is coming and coming with His kingdom. If you have, will the Lord find you a faithful disciple living your life to be a disciple, living your life to make disciples of others? Are you hastening the day when joy will come to this world? Because Christ returns in glory and His kingdom comes. Are you hastening the day when sin and sorrows no longer grow? When thorns no longer infest the ground? When Christ comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found? When He rules this world with truth and grace? When the nations of the world prove the glories of His righteousness and the wonders of His love? Are you praying, Lord... Let your kingdom come. Let's pray. Father, we pray that now. We pray that your kingdom would come. And Lord, if there's any desire to delay the coming of your kingdom, I pray, Lord, that it would not be for selfish reasons or kingdom building of our own. I pray instead, Lord, that it would be because we so long to be better disciples, more faithful followers, because we want to live lives of holiness before you. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of grace, which means that if you come in this moment, even if we have lived lives of of sin and unfaithfulness, even if we have squandered the gifts you have given us, if we are in you, there is forgiveness for that. So we need not fear, Lord, your your grace covers our sins, past, present, and future. But Lord, may we long in our hearts in light of your coming to be the people you've called us to be, to live lives of godliness and holiness, to be faithful, to be, and to make disciples. Lord, it could be. Though how your sovereignty works, we don't know. How our actions could hasten your coming, we don't know. But Lord, we read it in your word. Could it be? That if we are faithful, that we would hasten the day of your return and that you might come in our lifetime. Lord, may it be so. And, and may, us, may, may we say that with joy and without fear because nothing else in this world matters. The greatest thing is that you come again and establish your kingdom for all eternity. So we pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll look in your bullets and you'll see that the last song is Joy to the World. And I've just got to say, 